Hello and welcome to the Bradley Lectures Podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Wolford. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, the United Kingdom has officially left the European Union, raising questions about its ongoing stability. Four months later, Germany and France, two of the EU's principal powers, are facing COVID crises, and the collective German-backed European vaccine rollout has been widely derided as bogged down and inefficient. The benefits of unity and efficacy of the European Union are in question by its members. What will be the answer? This month, we will hear a 2014 lecture from Professor Brendan Sims of Cambridge University, entitled European Questions, German Problems, and Anglo-American Solutions. First given during the Russian and Ukrainian crisis, he argues that the stability of Germany is central to the unity of Europe. He examines what may happen when this stability is challenged, and then explores how Europe may instead be unified on new grounds, similar to American federalism. As we listen, perhaps we can imagine how his questions and answers may be relevant to this new crisis facing Germany and the European Union today. I'm an historian, and so I can't offer you any inside baseball, as you call it here, on what is happening in London, Berlin, and Brussels. Instead, as has been said, I will speak to my book, Europe, the Struggle for Supremacy, 1453 to the Present, and especially to four of its themes. They are, first of all, the centrality of Germany for the past 500 years of European history. The second theme is that the European order has always reflected this centrality. The third theme is that for most of history, and indeed today, German policy should be understood structurally rather than behaviorally. And finally, I'd like to argue that historically speaking, the Anglo-American form of constitutional organization is the superior one. I'm going to start in 1453 and lead you by leaps and bounds to the Ukrainian crisis of today. Let me begin with the centrality of Germany in European history. This is a function really of two things. First of all, location. As you all know, Germany is located, always has been, always will be, at the heart of the European continent. And so it has been historically a vital space contested by all the principal European powers, and indeed by the 20th century, also the global powers. So for England, controlling Germany, or at least having a role in Germany, was vital for the defense of the Low Countries, which of course were vital for the defense of Southern England. And so maintaining a strong position in Germany has always been critical to English and later British foreign policy. You see this in the policies of Elizabeth I in the 16th century, in the 17th century, when they argued about whether or not to intervene in support of German Protestants. The decision not to do so essentially cost Charles I his head. You see this, of course, in the 18th century in the policies of William Pitt the Elder, and so on, all the way through. The centrality of Germany is also true for France, particularly beginning in the 17th century with the concern to prevent the encirclement of France by the Habsburg powers, Habsburgs at this point being not only in Spain and in present-day Austria, but also to the north of France in the Low Countries. So breaking into Germany, breaking open this ring of encirclement was vital to preventing France from being strangled by this Habsburg 
superiority. And this, of course, meant Germany was at the heart of things. And this preoccupation with Germany, again, remained all the way through the 18th century, through Napoleon's repeated invasions of Germany. It was also true of Sweden. Sweden, a major player in the 17th century, concerned to prevent its southern coast from being threatened from Germany, and so determined to control the coast on the other side, northern Germany. The Ottomans saw Germany as their ultimate objective. And indeed, after 1453, fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks, the main axis of the Ottoman advance is not into the Mediterranean, important though that was, but through Hungary, Croatia, into Central Europe. And of course, it was the epic battles in front of Vienna in 1529, and then again in 1683, which decided the outcome of that struggle. So again, Germany was at the heart of this story. From the 18th century, Germany was at the heart of Russian foreign policy. Russia became a guarantor of the German constitution in the 18th century. Russia remained fundamentally concerned in Germany in the 19th century. Of course, you all know in the 20th century, Stalin's policies were focused on Germany. And for the United States, hardly needs saying that from 1917, at the latest, Germany once again at the core of foreign policy. So location is important. Secondly, resources, population. Germany, next to Russia, the most populous country in Europe, also the wealthiest, not merely since industrialization, but indeed also in the early modern period, famous even in the pre-industrial period for its wealth, for the ingenuity and the hardworking nature of its population. Germany, also huge military importance. Again, well before the period we would think of as the classic moments of German military prowess, beginning, say, in the 18th century, through to the unfortunate achievements of the German Wehrmacht in the Second World War. Even in the 16th and 17th century, Germans were regarded as prized soldiers, mercenaries which were bargaining counters in the European balance of power. So the long and short of this is that not only was Germany the location for many of these contests, it was also the prize. If you could control Germany, you controlled a key bargaining counter in the European balance. And just to illustrate this, I'd like to read out a couple of quotations taken across several hundred years of European history. My first is from the Swedish negotiator at the Treaty of Westphalia, or leading to the Treaty of Westphalia in 1646. And he says, I quote, the crown of Sweden had to pay close attention to Germany and protect itself because it was a temperate and populous part of the world and a warlike people, that there was not a country under the sun in a better position to establish a universal monarchy and absolute dominion in Europe than Germany. If one potentate wielded absolute power in this realm, all the neighboring realms would have to apprehend being subjugated. Or again, in 1729, nearly 100 years later, a foreign office diplomat in, in, in France says of Habsburg designs to revive the power of the emperor in Germany, he says, this threatens, and I quote, to alter the government of the empire to such an extent that it will become a monarchy, allowing the emperor to elevate himself 
to the absolute ruler of Germany, which would indeed overturn the balance of power in Germany. Or take the remarks of US Secretary of State Robert Lansing in October 1918, when he says, quote, Bolshevism must not be allowed to master the people of Central Europe, by which he meant Germany, where it would become a greater menace to the world than Prussianism. Or, one of many examples, the words of the then presidential candidate Dwight Eisenhower in March 1952, Germany is the prize for which the international game is being played, speaking there both in terms of location and in terms of the Germans themselves as a prize. So I think you will agree that even over these centuries, hundreds of years, the centrality of Germany has remained remarkably constant in European and indeed world history. And what's interesting about this story is that Germany is central whether it is weak or whether it is strong. If Germany is weak and divided, it tends to suck in instability from all sides. You see this particularly during the Thirty Years' War in the early to mid 17th century, when French, Swedes, particularly Spanish Habsburgs, come into Germany and turn it into a, a battlefield, assisted, of course, by the Germans themselves. And this is very traumatic for Germany. Population losses about one third, but of course, it's a major structural problem for Europe as well, because it shows that the whole European system can be destabilized if Germany is weak and sucks in outside powers. At the same time, of course, if Germany is strong, it can potentially export instability. And that's what we saw between the unification of the Second German Reich in 1870-71 and the end of the Third Reich in 1945. It was such a power that it unhinged the whole European and global balance. You all know about the two world wars. We can take them as red. We simply need to note that it took the effort of almost the entire world twice to contain the Germans. So either way, whether Germany is weak or whether Germany is strong, it is at the heart of what is going on. And this means that the European order has tended to reflect the German question. First example, the Treaties of Westphalia in 1648, which bring to an end the Thirty Years' War and are generally regarded as the foundation stone of the modern international order. Now, what these tried to do was to refine the Holy Roman Empire, the general political commonwealth, which held Germany together in such a way that Germans could coexist without falling out among themselves and sparking off a general European conflagration, and also to stop outsiders from coming in and exploiting the Germans and seizing the resources of Germany. And it did so by establishing what was effectively a power-sharing arrangement within Germany to detoxify the terrible political divisions, principally between Catholics and various forms of Protestants, but also between the emperor and the princes, the individual princes and the imperial cities, and so on. And they did so by establishing a mechanism within the imperial parliament, the Reichstag, which essentially said that matters of contention, particularly religious matters, had to be decided by consensus. 
Likewise, you had the imperial courts, which resolved outstanding issues. You had a military constitution, which was designed to mobilize the entire force of Germany against external predators. And you also had external guarantees by the French and the Swedes to prevent Germans from falling out among themselves. They would guarantee the different parts of the imperial constitution. Now, this was a very good solution in the sense that it did indeed prevent Germans from going at each other hammer and tongs as they had during the Thirty Years' War. And it was a very civilized and urbane environment with imperial courts and, and, and generally a legal system of resolving disputes, not by violence. The problem was, and this is pregnant for the present day difficulties in Europe, the problem was that this was also a weak system. What made Germans coexist also made them weak towards the outside world. And in the end, the French Revolution and Napoleon overrun this German empire and destroy it in 1806. The new settlement, the Vienna settlement of 1815, likewise is designed as a German settlement, a German settlement to contain France. So you have again common institutions in Germany, a federal military constitution to create corps which could deal with French intervention, a federal assembly to enable Germans to get on with each other. But again, that doesn't work because Napoleon III attempts to revise the Vienna settlement and to regain territories from Germany. And of course, Bismarck then has an easy job to unify Germany in the course of the 1860s and in 1870-71. The Versailles settlement in 1919, ending the First World War, was of course also a settlement to contain Germany. And the League of Nations was a global arrangement designed to enforce this peace. And indeed, the terms of the Versailles Treaty, as many of you will know, were written into the League Covenant. In 1945, the Yalta and the Potsdam settlements, again, were settlements designed to contain Germany, a territorial dispensation which involved the partition of Germany, the creation of occupation zones, and once again, a form of international organization, this time the United Nations, which had originated in the Second World War as an alliance against Germany, the United Nations against the Axis powers. So you can see that international organization has its roots in the German problem. After the Second World War, the European project, again, was an answer to the German problem in two ways. From the French point of view, and the point of view of many other Europeans, it was a project to lock in, to, to contain Germany, to prevent a repetition of the two world wars. For the Americans, and to a certain extent also for the British, but principally for the Americans, it was a double project. One, yes, to contain the Germans, but also, very importantly, to mobilize them. European integration was designed to mobilize Germany for the defense of Western Europe against the Soviet Union. And in order to do this, what was originally envisaged in the European integration project was a combination of parliamentary and military union. In some ways, a, an imitation of what was done in this country at the end of the 1780s. Now in the mid 1950s, 
there was crucially an uncoupling of these two strands because the failure of the European defense community, vetoed by the French, meant that the defense of Europe militarily devolved to NATO, whereas the integration of Europe politically and economically devolved to the European economic community. And that was a kind of a fatal divergence. Now, the result of this European project is that Germany has been successfully embedded in Europe. And German unification in 1990 did not change this equation at first. In fact, the euro, the common currency, absorbed the mighty Deutschmark. Then two things happened. First, the design of the euro, as you will know, flooded the periphery with cheap credit, public and private, creating the great bubbles that burst recently. Secondly, perhaps one is less aware of this, the European Union took on a lot of German political culture. It began to resemble more and more the Holy Roman Empire. And by this I mean both positive and negative aspects. The positive aspects were the emphasis on legality, on consensus, and peaceful conflict resolution. These are all good things, particularly in a benevolent world. The problem is the world is not always benevolent. And so the negative aspects of the old Holy Roman Empire came to the fore, which was that the European Union was also sclerotic, weak, divided by petty rivalries, a failure to harness the energies of its inhabitants. And all of this led in the 18th and 19th centuries to being swallowed up by revolutionary and Napoleonic France in the case of the Holy Roman Empire. And in the case of the European Union today, it has rendered it unsuited to deal with the primary internal and external challenges it faces. And let me go through those very briefly. You'll be familiar with them, but I'll come back to them as a product of this historical background. We have the sovereign debt crisis, particularly strong in Greece, Spain, Portugal, and Italy. We have an economic crisis of stagnation, recession, the danger of depression. We have, therefore, the weakness of the European Union in the world, economically, for example, against China. We have the European Union as a weak partner with the United States globally, which I think is especially serious at a time like today when US power appears to be in retreat. We have, indeed, the danger of fragmentation within the European Union, whether this be the dreaded Grexit, the idea that Greece would leave the Union precipitously and then produce some kind of contagion or knock-on effect, or the possibility even of a central secession where Germany fed up with acting as a paymaster somehow left and reintroduced at the Deutschmark. Because the paradoxical result of the mechanism to contain Germany, which was European integration, the creation of the euro, hasn't in fact contained it in the sense that was intended it actually served to empower it. So we have at the moment a resentment of German power in Europe, which we haven't seen for many, many decades. And I want to give you now a case study in European weakness, which is the, Europe, the Ukrainian crisis. And I want to link that back to these structural factors that have developed historically. I don't want to offer a detailed account of the Crimean problem, its rights and wrongs, 
but I think we probably, most of us agree that Mr. Putin's desire to maintain Russia's influence over her near abroad and his desire to create a Eurasian Union is at the root of this crisis. The point I want to make is that it's clear that in the European Union, the German response to Mr. Putin will be decisive and indeed has been decisive in the sense that this response is pusillanimous. But is Germany, none of the actors have particularly covered themselves in glory, but it is Germany which has been the most firmly opposed to decisive action. And I'd like to explain this not just through the economic interests at work, not just through the energy dependency of Germany, all important factors, but I think it goes back to a much more deep-rooted structural shift that I think has been imperfectly understood. The structural shift that happened in Europe in 1990 and in the course of the 1990s was not so much the increase of German power through German unification, the accession of population and of economic potential, because that took a long time to work its way through and in some ways is still a drag. Rather, the shift is the change in German security. For hundreds of years, for the reasons I've outlined, because it was surrounded by hostile powers, Germany was enveloped by enemies or potential enemies. This changed significantly in the years after 1990 through the double enlargement of NATO and the European Union, particularly of NATO. It absorbed the former GDR, German Democratic Republic, it absorbed Poland, and of course, the Baltic states and the Central European states as well. And it's important to remember here that Germany at that time was in favor of this enlargement. In fact, it was, it was happy and not happy, but it was prepared to countenance Russian objections. It rode roughshod over Russian feelings in the matter of the eastward enlargement of NATO into the GDR and into Poland. And the result of this was summarized by the State Secretary in the German Foreign Office, Hans Friedrich Plötz, in November 1997, looking forward to the first major enlargement. He says, and I quote, for the first time in its existence, Germany is surrounded by allies, not enemies, who don't see us as a threat anymore. But the corollary was that Germany in turn no longer felt threatened. And this meant that Germany thereafter became a retardant in the enlargement process. We saw this particularly at and just before the April 2008 Bucharest summit on NATO, where uh, Germans were among those, well, they were the most firmly opposed to the discussions with Ukraine and with Georgia. So Germans having profited from the NATO ladder, effectively pull it up behind them. And we see it also in Germany being opposed to intervention in Libya and in Syria. The point is not so much what the rights and wrongs of these individual cases are, my argument is that the trend is clear. That Germany no longer sees the big picture as something that's of decisive importance to it. Germany simply doesn't feel threatened anymore. And unlike Britain, France, and the United States, it doesn't feel any direct sense of responsibility for the overall European 
or global balance, at least not in any hard power sense. Yes, in terms of environment, but not in terms of military security. So that the European project, this is the great irony, has succeeded neither in containment nor in mobilization of Germany. And the result is that by refusing the further enlargement of NATO, Germany has actually encouraged the aggression that we have seen more recently. It has created a vacuum on the eastern border of the Union into which now pushes Mr. Putin. And this is a huge problem for Europe and the West generally. It has long been recognized that the continent punches below its weight on the international scene. We now also have to come to terms with the fact that the post-Cold War political and geopolitical dispensation has created a vacuum at the heart of Europe. So, what to do? Well, in the fourth and final part of my remarks, I turn from the problem from history to the solution from history. Because it strikes me that these challenges have been faced by polities in the past, in particular by the United Kingdom, or what was to become the United Kingdom, and the United States. So, in the early 18th century, England and Scotland both faced a massive French threat in the shape of Louis XIV's absolutism and plans for universal monarchy. England had an open flank in Scotland. The Scots were broke, having wasted a lot of money on the Darien expedition in the late 17th century. So they had a double crisis, a strategic crisis, the fact that they were not operating together against the common enemy, and they had, in the case of Scotland certainly, an economic crisis. Similarly, the newly independent 13 states in the late 1780s faced a huge problem. They faced the problem of the war debt, incurred fighting against George III. They faced a huge external threat, often not realized. So British still, as you will know, in Canada to the north, Spaniards in the south, and Native Americans in the west, Barbary pirates on the high seas beating up on US commerce, which had lost the protection of the Royal Navy. So a critical security situation, a huge danger articulated by elites at the time, as you will know, that the young republic will simply be overrun by the predatory great powers. And there was also the huge danger of internal disunity. Um, and here the founding fathers were conscious of the dangers of the Italian example, that the United States would fall apart just as Italy had basically disintegrated in the 15th and 16th centuries. So how did these polities address these challenges? Well, in the case of England and Scotland, in 1707, there was the Act of Union, which created a joint parliament, pooled the debt, recognized Scottish peculiarity in law and religion, and created a joint project for empire and war in Europe against France. So this union made war, and that war and all the wars that followed made the union, so that you ended up with a highly successful fiscal military British state, which punched hugely above its weight in Europe and the world. And it was to that model, of course, that the Americans turned in the late 1780s, when they were considering the problems I sketched a few minutes ago. And what I think is particularly remarkable 
against the background of the first part of my lecture is that they considered and specifically rejected the model of the Holy Roman Empire. I just want to read out here some passages from Federalist Paper 19 by Madison and Hamilton. And they say that the quote, the federal system of the quote, Germanic Empire is, and I quote, a nerveless body incapable of regulating its own members, insecure against external dangers, and agitated with unceasing fermentations in its own bowels. Military preparations must be preceded by so many tedious discussions arising from the jealousies, pride, separate views, and clashing pretensions of sovereign bodies that before the Diet, which is the German Reichstag, the German Parliament, can settle the arrangements, the enemy are in the field. Now that was written in 1787, but I submit to you that those remarks would not be out of place in 2014 about the European Union as well. So the Americans looked at this example and rejected it and turned to the Anglo-Scottish example and specifically endorsed it. So what results is an American system, which of course is, is, is American and distinct, but nevertheless in its essence follows the Anglo-Scottish model, specifically so by pooling the debt, creating a treasury bond, by creating a common parliamentary representation, of course, an army and navy in due course, and all of this created a common focus and identity. And the rest is history. You know, the United States becomes the greatest power on earth. So how can these lessons be applied to the Eurozone today? I'm going to leave you with these somewhat utopian reflections, but they arise out of my study of history. What we need, I think, is an Anglo-American constitutional structure with something like presidency, senate for the regions or for the states, and a house of citizens or house of representatives for the population. We need the pooled debt as a once-off and then balanced budgets. We need a single army. We need a single language of government, which of course would have to be English. And all of this would be affected should be affected by a pan-Eurozone constitutional convention elected by popular vote, which puts its proposal to the vote on the same day in every participating state. This is the solution that will square all the circles that I outlined earlier. It will enable the smaller Eurozone populations to participate without disenfranchising the Germans. It will not only contain the Germans, a big aspect of the historical record, but also mobilize them, the other half of the problem, in the common cause. It will create a single European representation, a single treasury bond, and a single security strategy, which today, for the reasons given, must be focused principally upon the East. So to conclude, the British and the American unions made history. If the Eurozone fails to establish a similar mighty union, then it will be history too but not in the way that it had intended. Thank you for your attention. Although originally given in 2014, I hope you will find this to have been a relevant lecture, especially when we once again face an embattled European Union, led by a Germany that is under criticism from its fellow members. Whether Dr. Sims' analysis will come to pass, who can say? As always, thank you for listening to the Bradley Lectures podcast. If you'd like more information on the podcast, feel free to follow us on Twitter, 
at the handle at Bradley Lectures, or email us at bradleylecturespod at aei.org. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us next month for the Bradley Lectures podcast.